Comic Book Resources, a.k.a. CBR, posted a list called 10 Comics Tropes We Kinda Love. And after reading that list, we here at Sidebar Forever, yeah, we kind of love that list. As OG fans and readers, we know all the tropes and several of them we really do dig. Silly as it may seem to a non-fan, these tropes are what makes comics comics, or at least it used to. Adrian and I go through the list one by one and point out examples of tried and true tropes in comics. Stuff like supervillains teaming up or the unstoppable power of an event book like Crisis and whatnot. Ugh. <laughs> anyway, we even throw out a few tropes of our own, some that haven't aged quite so well. Thanks to CBR for the inspiration, and thanks to y'all for listening. <laughs> no, uh, CBR posted that list of 10 comic book tropes we kind of love, and I thought it was funny and cool because it was, you know, it took me back to when I was a kid uh, mm-hmm. as a preteen and a teen, and, you know, the the tropes and the, and the recurring kind of... Uh, uh, schlocky kind of uh, uh story uh points that would that would happen over and over again and after a while you know you know once you were a seasoned young comic book reader you could kind of see it coming you know yes but you still loved it some of them some of them you, you didn't but some of them you really did love to the point where the editorial for comics like for marvel and dc they would actually create a whole title Based on some of these tropes, like, you know, supervillain team up was a title that came out. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah. what or, 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 yeah. for yourself, Go man, ahead. what was what was your earliest memory of being aware that, oh, you know, you, where you could see the game coming, you could see the second hand, you know, the the uh, the sleight of hand as far as the writers were concerned. And so I've seen this before, but you were still kind of like, I'm still on board, though. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think probably after I started reading more um, kind of Bronze Age and 80s comics, mm-hmm. you know, like it seemed like that type of stuff occurred very frequently. Yeah. But a lot of times it would occur, especially in like Marvel comics from that period, oh, yeah. for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. You know, Marvel was replete with team ups. You know, of both heroes and then on the villain side, of course, you know, super villain team up and, and things like that. It's like they always had a handle on, well, let's do a bunch of team ups all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And even though they've teamed up hundreds of times before then, why are they still coming together and fighting, fighting each other like they ain't never met before? <laughs> and then halfway through the issue, they hold their heads like, oh, Oh, I thought it was. Oh, I thought it was somebody else. Oh, it was you. Yeah. It's like, come on, man. Come on, Spidey. Come you know on, what? bro. It's it's very reminiscent of the um, the kinds of setups that you would see in romantic comedies and rom coms, and you know mm-hmm. where it's the you know it's the main character and they've got the best friend who's encouraging and funny and quirky and uh, they just can't figure out love and then they have the, what's called the meet cute. You know, with their romantic yeah. partner or whatever, and then there's got to be a misunderstanding of some kind that could really be cleared up in a thirty second conversation, but they just can't seem to bring themselves to do it. And then, yeah. and then the chasing of the of the uh, of of their romantic partner at the end—it's like that, or you know, some of the tropes that we see in in any genre, really, uh, uh, like you know, uh, horror movies. You know, the family moves in a house, or, and there's a mystery behind the house, or. Uh, there's a secret in the family. There's some supernatural secret in the family, or 
Um, you know, just all that, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and, and you know, it's it's interesting because if you think about it, that's almost like an like a an unspoken rule book, if you will. Like if you're reading comics, these are certain conventions and tropes that you come across. You know what I'm saying? Uh, much like like you know the analogy you have with like horror movies and even action movies. Mm-hmm. When we go to see those type of genres, we already know it's like a playbook. You know what I'm saying? And we feel in good hands when the movie itself is kind of going according to that playbook. Right. You know, because we almost feel like we're smarter than the movie to a certain point. But when the story takes a left turn that we didn't expect and it's a good one. That's when we feel like, oh, wow. Right. Oh, okay. So you've taken that trope and flipped it on its head as opposed to like sticking totally with the playbook throughout the whole thing. But we do want, after that left turn, for you to go back to the playbook right. to end the story. Right. You, you can have one, maybe two left turns, but you better turn your ass around and get back to this playbook. Before the end of the story, you know, and, it, and, and it's funny that you bring up the term playbook because it's really the, the one of the best analogies is like sports, like specifically with football, American football, where mm-hmm. you know how the game is played. You know, you get four four chances to get a first down, and then you you know, eventually can score a touchdown or a field goal, what have you. Uh, you get yeah. you you know how the game is played, and you know how it's going to move. But it's what plays they use and how they use them. And when something surprising happens where it's like, oh, oh, he faked and he's actually throwing a bomb to the wide receiver. The wide receiver caught it. We didn't even see that coming. And he's ready. You know what I'm saying? And you get surprised by by certain moves within the game. But then, like you said, after the receiver goes into the end zone, okay, now we go back to the playbook. We go back to the rules and we kick the extra point. Excellent. You know what I'm saying? Perfect. And it's exactly Mm -hmm. like that. But. Um, I, I, I've, I've talked multiple times on the show about, you know, I was that kid reading Silver Age comics back in the 70s and 80s, you know, Superman family and action comics and whatnot. And if there was a gorilla on the cover of the, of the book, <laughs> I was in, you know, I, I don't know what it was, you know, give me some Superman versus Gorilla Grodd. And I was, I was yeah. just a happy camper. I was a happy reader, but, uh, CB, CBR <laughs> posted a list, 10 comic book tropes, that we kind of love, uh, and we've got all ten of them here. We'll go through them in uh, in reverse order, of course, ten all the way down to one. And then I wrote down a couple that I came up with myself, and I assume you as the uh, as the human Wikipedia page as uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got yours as well. Yes, sir. But this the number ten is really easy because we actually did an entire episode uh, based around this one. The evil opposite villain trope is a classic. Yes. You know. The doppelganger. The doppelganger. Yes. We love us some doppelgangers, yo. Uh, yes. yes. And, and you've got, you know, like Reverse Flash, The Abomination, mm-hmm. uh, Black Adam, uh, Sinestro, Bizarro to an extent. I don't I don't necessarily consider him a villain, but. Yeah, I was, I was thinking that I was about to say Bizarro, but the thing with the doppelganger, they have to look like the opposite number. Right. In truly in appearance, you know what I'm saying? Right. So, yeah, yeah. And, and I'll be honest with you, I've never read a Black Adam story that I can recall. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I get what he is. You know, he, he kind of reminds me, obviously, of like, you know, Shazam or Captain Marvel's Reverse Flash 
or mm-hmm. or the better is really to me is is he's kind of like the uh uh remember we did we talked about bewitched and yeah. her, her evil twin <laughs> sister who just simply had dark hair you yeah. know and that was that was really it but have you ever read a black adam story are you a fan of that character no no and in fact I don't remember Black Adam coming to prominence to me until like the, I'd say the early to mid 2000s where he was involved in the uh, JSA um, comic. Um, I think Jeff Johns was writing JSA around that time and brought Black Adam in. And I remember there was a couple of storylines with him, you know, with that, but he's never been like a runaway popular character, you know, and uh, it's just like, eh, eh, no. Okay. And as he is going to be portrayed in the film by Dwayne Johnson, a.k.a. The Rock, is Black Adam supposed to be uh, like an ethnic character? Is he supposed to be a brown person or, you know, multiracial in some way or of or of, of mysterious ethnic origins? I think the latter okay. is, is probably the best definition because at once, yes, he is um, like he derives his powers from you know, the Egyptian gods and so forth. But in terms of appearance over the years, they've played them like, you know, several different ways, you know. Now since The Rock has said, hey, I want to play him. Hmm, all these depictions now are being drawn with him. <laughs> Interestingly, hmm. But before, this dude had like slick back hair, like Rico Suave, you know. He was just like, <laughs> he was just like, man. You know, so I think I guess now since Dwayne Johnson is going to be Black Adam, they're just like, okay, do it like that. You know, gotcha, gotcha. The um, every time I would actually look at him, he always looked to me. Uh, he always looked kind of like you know, just like a one-off of Sinestro with that widow's peak. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just kind of, although Sinestro has that long, you know, bulbous head, you know, looks, you know, <laughs> like a freaking, uh, you know, bratwurst or something. But, uh, <laughs> dang. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. You know, no, you know who you're thinking of? No, you're thinking of the leader. Am I thinking of the leader? From the Hulk. Yeah. The leader also has the goatee, but the large head, and he's green. Now, Sinestro has an exaggerated head as well, but it's not as Frankfurter-like or... <laughs> Frankfurter. <laughs> Brock, yeah, Brockworth-like, like you said, you know, with that. So I think you may be thinking about the leader, um, who's also colored, who's also green. Okay. Okay. All right, got you. Okay, that's... Okay. I guess I might have that wrong. I probably have that wrong. Um but number nine on the list is Death Traps Are Awesome. Mm-hmm. And, as, you know, I'm a little older than you are, so I was watching, you know, probably 10, 12, 13 years after it had it first aired, I was watching the, uh, the 60s era Batman TV show, which, to use your word from earlier, was replete with, you know, these outrageous death traps, you know, uh, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, taking pages, I guess, from like, you know, from like the James Bond films of the 60s with Sean Connery, you know, where, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Goldfinger has him strapped to the table, you know, spread eagle, and there's a laser coming up that's getting ready to slice him in half, starting basically at his genitalia. And he says, you know, what do you expect me to do, Goldfinger? I expect you to die, Mr. Bond. Die. You know? 
and uh, you know, and just all of the weird ways that they would try to kill Batman on that television show, as opposed to like mm-hmm. in you know in uh, Austin Powers International Man of Mystery, you know, where the uh, the Seth Green character says, "Just take him and shoot him in the head. Just get a gun and right. just shoot him in the head. What are you doing all this elaborate stuff for?" You know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these death traps are like elaborate engineering feats. Like, think about it. For months, you had to put this stuff yeah. together. You had to probably get a contractor in there. Hey, I'm going to need a lava pit at the bottom of my mansion. <laughs> right, uh, right, right. I'm going to need a slide <laughs> that goes down here. Uh, you think we could work something right. out? You run a whole depot and go get, <laughs> go get these and go get materials, right yo. Look, the uh, yeah. <laughs> look, the technicians show up. We got a scope of work for a lava pit. Uh, is this uh, <laughs> five two two four seven uh, supervillain lane? Okay, <laughs> we got like eighty tons of lava here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. But you know that reminds me of uh, um, you talk about death traps. There is an issue of uh, Daredevil, believe it or mm-hmm. not, that Harlan Ellison wrote. And David Mazzucchelli drew. It's uh, Daredevil 209, if I recall correctly. Either 208 or 209. And Daredevil somehow is lured into this house. And the whole house is a death trap. The whole thing. Okay. All of it. Great issue. Wonderful issue. Fantastic. And I urge anybody out there, check that out. Okay. And that is the ultimate version of this trope, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man. I mean, you got other stuff too, like obviously the Silver Age Batman comics, where you know there would be death traps, you know, you you mm-hmm. know, or just really the Silver Age period, where you know you you tie someone to you know to a uh, to the hands of a clock tower, and when the hands come together, you know they're crushed, or you know, yeah. or even I even referenced in the uh, in the CBR uh, list. You know, uh, the murder world issue of X-Men, you know, written by Claremont and John Byrne, you know, where the X-Men mm. are in murder world and they have to kind of go through this kind of funhouse mirrors, you know, series of death traps or whatever. And it's it's very outrageous and kind of ridiculous. But at the same time, I do like the kind of uh, lack of seriousness and lack of darkness uh, involved with such a thing. You Almost like if you go back and look at... Um, uh, Watchmen, and you look at the Watchmen comic, and so you know Alan Moore said, "I'm going to drop a big fake alien squid on this on 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 the city of New York and kill you know millions of people." And then when they adapted that for the film that Zack Snyder directed, he just basically turned it into a bomb. Mm-hmm. And a bomb is very real world, and a bomb is of course you know much more uh, you know we see that happening in our real lives. So it's a little yeah. darker and a little less fun, a little more morbid in my in my opinion. The squid, as goofy as it was, was its own thing. And oddly enough, the Damon Lindelof adapted uh, TV version of of HBO's Watchmen brought back the squid and actually made it kind of cool and made it kind of work in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and going along the lines of what you were saying about you know. This trope and many of the tropes on this list just really, you know, evoking, you know, a kind of um, uh, lightheartedness, if you will, to like, you know, comics. I do think that's what's missing from a lot of comics today, at least mainstream comics, you know, just like 
everything is so just dark and how we can do this. How would this really be? You're talking about people that fly and shoot beams out their eyes and you're trying to extrapolate how would this really be? You know, no. Right. Sometimes you just have to go with the conventions yeah. that are, you know, that make the comic, that make the genre really sing, man. You know what I mean? No, exactly. And, and you know, and Dwight has mentioned this before, that one of the reasons why he likes comics is he he doesn't want to come to comics for things that he can get in in better in better places in other media. You know, like... You know, he feels like, you know, let's do the things that make comics special and interesting and different and to some extent outrageous and over the top and silly. You know, let's embrace mm-hmm. that for what it is. You know, let's leave some of the uh, some of the other stuff to, to, to mediums that are better suited uh, to handle those things uh, because he just doesn't find them satisfying. At least that, I don't mean to put words in his mouth, but I, I, that's what I recall his uh, his position kind of being on that. But number eight, yeah. number eight, sir, is is. Will they, won't they romances never get old? No. So, no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we've got Wolverine and Jean Grey, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that was one where it was like, okay, okay, let's just call it what it was, yo, as far as Jean Grey. You know, she's dating Scott, but she's kind of got a thing yeah. for Wolverine. So, these hoes ain't loyal, Okay. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> she keeping her options right, open, right, yo. right. She's like, you know, okay. Scott is is the is, is the boyfriend type. He's the married type. Wolverine is my emergency dick under glass. You know, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, you yo. know, the bad boy and the good boy. You know, uh, yeah, you know, with the, yeah, the girl you date versus the girl you marry, as we used to call it back in the day, but. Um, another one, and it seems like in, in the new Teen Titans, Dick and Coriander, seems like they didn't wait that long to get together. It did seem to happen very quickly yeah, early in yeah. the, the book's arc. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, and I was curious, like, and, and, and it's funny to think, like, very few artists have exact, not exaggerated, but have made note of the difference, you know, in height between Coriander and Dick Grayson. Mm-hmm. Because Coriander is this alien warrior, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And so she's tall in stature. And there was an image that um, Adam Hughes had drawn one time. He did a montage of the Titans for some poster or something. And there's a little vignette of Coriander. And she's clearly taller than Dick Grayson mm-hmm. as Robin. And it's just like, damn, when you put it like that, yeah. that, <laughs> that's like, Hmm, man, that's that's very interesting yeah. to to consider that. Yeah, yeah, very. He still was a teenager. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you got uh, Peter and MJ, of course. That's like the, you know, the romance of romances that goes back to the early days. You know, the Romita days of mm-hmm. Spider Man to the point where, and we'll get to this later on in the list where they eventually do get married. Yeah. You know? Yeah, uh, and become an official couple, and then another one going back to the the X Men was uh, Peter and Kitty Pride. Oh yeah, yeah, Piotr and uh, Kitty Pride. Yeah, yeah Colossus yeah, and and, yeah. and she, I guess she was Sprite at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah and then later, Shadow Cat. Shadow Cat. Yeah, you know, and 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 him, and that was kind of the other thing too. Is is I guess they were supposed to not be that far apart in age, but wasn't she supposed to be like fourteen or fifteen, and he was supposed to be like nineteen? Correct. Yeah. Exactly. And that always struck me kind of like, mm. Mm. 
I guess if it was a will they, won't they, maybe he waited at least until she was a little bit older before he actually made a real move on her, you know. But, you know, yeah, that's, that's yeah. kind of a heck of an age difference at that time because 19-year-olds are definitely, you know, very different uh, uh, in terms of levels of maturity than uh, a 15 or 14 or 15-year-old. But then again, they say girls age faster than boys, so, uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, and and Peter never struck me as the brightest bulb in the in the in the drawer, yo. So uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, right, like yeah, he had that naivete yeah. working overtime, yeah, for real. <laughs> so maybe they were they they were more well suited than uh, than I'm giving them credit for. But number seven, number seven is well written horror is a trope that pays dividends. And to be mm. honest, this is the only one that I question because I consider horror more of a yeah. genre than a trope. Right, you know what I mean? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know your EC comics, your creepies and eeries. Um, you know your House of Mysteries, House of Secrets. Later on, your Thirty Days of Night and Criminal Macabre, and and, and uh, mm-hmm. anything really that Richard Corbin illustrates kind of seems to feel like horror, horror to me. But um, but that one seems more like a genre than it is actually an actual trope. Yeah, and you know, and, I, and I, when I saw that one, I was trying to wrap my head around it in terms of, you know, is that is that really a trope? Because really, the whole thing with horror and comics is you obviously have the visual component, and what you're trying to do is at least the best it can in a comic book, you're trying to evince a a scare, if you will, or at least a surprise, mm-hmm. you know, out of the reader with this particular plot or this particular story, you know. And so I guess maybe the best comic book horror stories are the ones that have like a twist ending or something to where you're like, oh, man, I didn't expect that. Or you really did not see this coming or, you know, you did maybe even even you did get a scare out of it. Like speaking of Richard Corbin, that um, that. that arc in Hellblazer where John Constantine goes to prison, hard time. Mm-hmm. That comic book legitimately scared me. Yeah. I like like a horror movie. It really did scare yeah. me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so you so it is possible for horror to be very well done inside of a comic book, you know, and to give you the same type of thrills, chills, and scares that you would from a from a prose. Um, story right. or even a horror movie. I th- and know? I think that's kind of part of it too is is the writing as far as horror is concerned in comics, the writing really has to be on a certain level and it really have to you really have to lean into the psychological. So, you know, where the reader is mm-hmm. reading because I've read, you know, horror stories and I've read uh short stories and I've read, you know, horror-based science fiction as a teenager and as yeah. a kid that really did unsettle me. And it was just prose. It didn't even have the images to go along with it. So I mm-hmm. do think I do think you know it does re- require a really deft hand as far as the uh, the writing goes uh, to kind of pull that off in comics. But again, I agree with you. Or I, th- I think we are in agreement that yeah, it's really more of a genre in comics than it is an actual trope, so to speak. But um, mm. this next one is 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 a, is an, a 100% trope, and I have to I'll say I'll go ahead and say. Uh, uh, ahead of time that I've never liked this one. I've never, ever, okay. ever been on board. Number six is event books will always be popular. Uh, see, see, see? <laughs> that's a mixed bag, yo, because uh, yep. I came into comics and 
right smack dab, there were events going on. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And it was just like, I, I, I was kind of bred into it as a comics reader around that time. You know, um, in the 90s, there was Executioner's Song uh, back in 93 when I got into mm-hmm. it. And, and I got swept up in it. I got swept into, oh, man, I got to get all these executioner songs issues. Oh, they got their poly bagged and they have cards with them. I got to get all the cards. So it depends on what it is. But also, there is such a thing as event fatigue as well, man. Yeah. Uh, like if you read Green Lantern about, I'd say about 10 years ago, if you were reading Green Lantern, for a period of about three years there, event after event after event after event, it's like Jeff Johns did not get take a break. Mm. Every Green Lantern arc was an event. It was like, good Lord. Yeah. But people were eating him up, though. People were eating him up because he was throwing a new wrinkle into the mythos of Green Lantern and making it work. So I guess the reason why it's on the list is that event comics, if done right, they can be fantastic, like Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, the stuff after that, all those other crises, <laughs> says, says, says. <laughs> those are like, come on, y'all did it good. Y'all did it fine the first time. That's that's good. Just let it go. And even, even stuff to a degree like the death of Superman, maybe not the return, but the death of Superman leading up to it, that was good. Yeah. You know? Things like that, when when they're written properly, have a definite direction. You can tell the editorial said, this is the direction that we're going in. Instead of today, where it seems like all of the story, the event is spread over so many books that you have different editorial departments saying, well, uh, we should do this. Uh, and yeah. then this one over here, we should yeah. do that. Yeah. And it just goes all over the place and it's discombobulated and makes no sense. So event comics are the best when the editorial has a definite direction and all the books are headed in that direction, not otherwise. Yeah, I, I suppose you're right. Uh, you know, again, it's kind of like Feige with the uh, the MCU films, at least as far as those first few phases where it seemed like, you know, everything was heading towards what ultimately became the Infinity War and, and then uh, Endgame. Right. But, um, but yeah, right. yeah, like you mentioned, Crisis, the Crisis books, the Civil War, you know, back in the mm-hmm. uh, in the early aughts. Um, Secret mm-hmm. Wars back in the eighties, you, yeah, yeah, you know, all of that yeah. stuff, and I just I always thought it was BS. I just always was like, okay, this is just a game to just galvanize and to get people excited and to make them buy extra things that they don't want to buy, extra books they don't need to be reading, yes. you know. <laughs> yes. So anyway, I just I just never dug it. I was, you know, I was, I, I'm a one and done, a, a one and done person in my heart. So uh, if you can do a good so one just, and done, you know. You know, if you can go beyond that, fine. But if you can do a good one and done, to me, you're you're a good writer, uh, at least in my in my. You just want to, you just want to, you just want to close the issues back. I'm done. That's okay. it. That's I'm it. <laughs> yep. Number five, number five, sir. Superhero weddings don't get old. No, they don't. So, they don't. And you know what I love about those? What's men? that? Especially when I came into the industry, um, when I came into comics. I always loved when they would have those superhero wedding issues and the issues would always be double sized. Yes. Always. Yes. They would have to be. Yeah. This is a this is a momentous day. This is a momentous occasion. And on this occasion, 
you almost, you also must have the trope of some supervillains got to crash the party. Yes. Somebody's got to crash the yes. party. <laughs> even the uh, the image, we talked about Peter and MJ earlier, even the image of Peter in, in his costume as Spider-Man marrying MJ, and she's at the white wedding dress, and then on one side, you've got all his superhero friends who are like, yeah, yeah. And then on the other side, you got like Electro and Rhino and the vault and uh, the Vulture, and they're all looking like, "Man, yeah. as soon as y'all say I do, uh. we gonna whoop your ass, dog." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're gonna we're gonna let you get your we're gonna let you we're gonna let you get yours, but we're gonna whoop that ass. But you got um, <laughs> the one that I really remember the most, or the two that I remember the mm-hmm. most was um, Reed marrying Sue Richards, uh, Reed and Sue Richards yeah. getting married. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Vision and Wanda getting married in the Avengers. Hmm. And I remember thinking, well, damn, okay. You know, even an android can cry. Even an android can get married. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> even, even an android can get cuffed, you know? <laughs> but, but another big one, I guess this was back in maybe, again, the year, probably the 2010s, was uh, when Northstar married uh, Kyle. In the X-Men? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, and that was mm-hmm. a big one, too. And that's that's really my favorite thing about the superhero weddings is really like the, um, the, the quote, wedding photo with all of the heroes who show up to, you know, to stand up for the person, you know, that's getting married or the people that are getting married and, uh, you know, want to be there for the momentous occasion. And it's just, it's just always very nice. And I'll tell you one more. And again, this happened when I first got into comics. Um Back in the early 90s, um, Scott and Jean Grey, when they finally got married. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was a, it was a big, and there was like a big fold-out cover, because it was the 90s. So the cover folded out, and you saw like everybody standing off to the side and everything. You know what I'm right. saying? It, it, was, it was just very cool. I always loved those. They need to bring those back. They need to bring back double-sized wedding issues. Now, now, now <laughs> how, how did he marry Jean when she died? During the the death of Phoenix, how, how how did she? How did he actually end up marrying her? How did that happen? And if you well, well see, that's the thing though. It's like, <laughs> did he really marry her, or was it Madeline Pryor? Did she come back? Somehow they made it work. And all I know is, in X Men number thirty, they got married. <laughs> you know what? That's another one I'm going to bring up later on in the uh, just one of the ones that that we jotted down. But I, I'll get to that. Get to that when we get to it. But uh, right. Number four, death of stories tug the heartstrings. So mm. you mentioned earlier. I mean, it wasn't it was an event, but it wasn't probably wasn't sold as an event. But clearly, it was supposed to be eventized. The death of Superman. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, but other deaths that I've, I've talked again multiple times on the show about the death of Captain Marvel being one of my favorites. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, the aforementioned death of Jean Grey, uh, in those uh, mm. X Men is in the one forties, was it? One thirties, one forties. One thirty seven. One thirty seven. One thirty seven. The death of uh, Jean Grey or the death of Phoenix. That one was really mm-hmm. moving. You know, seeing Scott at the end of the story. You know, he's weeping over her charred remains, and you know, and 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 he knew all along. Okay, it was going to have to come to this. You know, it's just look. There's no way you're going to be able yeah. to get around this. Um, and even... And, I, and don't, don't, go ahead. Go ahead. I was say, I was hoping you were not going to skip past the death of Electra. No, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Okay. That was for me. That was a big one too because, you know, again, as Wolverine is to Jean Grey versus you know uh, versus Scott, Electro was. You knew even though that was Matt's first love, and you knew he still had that connection to her. You knew that they're never going to run off and be happy together like they did in that what if issue. That shit was never going to happen. And <laughs> yeah, on top yeah. of that, you know, as the rules of the morality and the rules and the ethics of of comic book storytelling goes, she's a murderer. She right. is a hired assassin. She is a a murderer. So she has to meet her fate at some point. It just depended on what point it was, and it ultimately ended up being at the point of her own her own sigh at the hands of, of Bullseye. Yep. You know. Oh! <laughs> oh man but you know what's interesting about that too is if you recall at the end of that issue remember how matt is standing in the snow at electra's grave yeah. and the snow is coming down around him as a callback to one of our previous playback episodes recently in blowout when i watched that scene at the end of blowout with john travolta sitting in the snow listening to nancy allen's scream mm-hmm. I thought that I thought back to damn that really looks like when Matt Murdock was standing in the snow at Electra's grave and curiously they both came out in the same year. Hmm. 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 Coincidence? I say not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think also, too, like the death of Superman, it was almost an event in and of itself, but the, the way that uh, DC played it was obviously the death of Robin oh, yeah. with uh, Jason Todd. Oh, yes, you know, yes. Where the yeah. fans mm-hmm. actually voted. You know, they had a voting as far as the, uh, you know, will he die, will he won't die or whatever. And they really played it up, you know, to to include the fans and to kind of get kind of a fervor going. Um which is kind of ghoulish. It's like, we're going to kill somebody or we might kill them. Should we kill them? It's like, you know, our, our, they're Nero at the, you know, in the Coliseum, the thumbs up or thumbs down, you know, <laughs> let the crowd determine your fate, you know, it's like, wow. Dang, so, yo. <laughs> but uh, number three, and this is another one that I really love. I've always loved this one. Here, right. Heroes and their crises, crisis, crises of faith are wonderful story arcs. Captain America. Captain America. That's that's Captain that's America. Nomad. Yes. You know, I I, I don't rep America no more. I'm out, I'm out here in these streets just wandering around with this yellow and blue outfit on. <laughs> you know, um, you've got uh, Spider-Man. You know, Spider-Man no more. Where he takes off oh, the costume yeah. and lays it on the trash can and he's walking with his back, turning his back on being oh, Spider-Man. Yeah. That hurt my feelings, Classic. yo. That hurt my feelings as a kid. I was like, what? What you doing? Damn. And, and it's crazy because it, it, it's, it's so beautiful the way Ramita drew yeah. it, man. And yeah. the rain is coming down. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah. man, damn. Yeah, yeah. R- Ramita crushed it. That was, that was like prime, primo, quintessential John Ramita Sr. Just, just yeah, like yeah. not missing a beat. Just... Brush strokes, just oh, pencil, pencil marks, graphite was just, ugh, just exactly what it needed to be, yo. Man, bro, absolutely. Yeah. Didn't yeah. the Teen Titans do an ep- uh, an issue like that as well? Where they kind of walked away? Yeah. Number thirty nine, uh, Robin and Kid Flash walked away, and in fact, it's on the cover too, kind of reminiscent of that. 
they had like their uniforms draped across the logo. Yeah. And they're walking away into the background of this blank white cover. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's man. it. That's it. So they kind of broke the fourth wall a bit by having hanging their costumes on the logo, making the logo like a part of their uh, their physical physical yeah. world or whatever. That's kind. That was kind of cool. Uh, mm-hmm. Number two, and I mentioned this one earlier. Supervillain team up team ups are chaotic fun. Oh yeah, so, you got to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and like I said, you know, you had supervillain team up as a as a comic book series back in the day, you know, Marvel supervillain team up, and I was looking at some of the back issues for that online. Lots of Doctor Doom and Namor. Doctor Doom and Namor had like a bromance going on, yo, where they were like, you know, look, you over there in Latveria, I'm over here in Atlantis. Let's let's hook this up, and let's 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 you know let's mess it up for some people. You know what I mean? That 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 is literally. Oil and water, yeah. or, or maybe in Doom's case, WD forty and water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It it was almost like a pro wrestling kind of a team up where, you know, the two villains in wrestling, you know, they team up and then maybe they would break up and go into other factions and then they would come back together again. It's like, oh, the sheik, yes. the sheik is back with uh Abdullah the Butcher or whatever, or yes. you know, or something like that. You know, and it would be so funny because that type of stuff. The hyperbole was thick. It was like, oh my god, the two of them together. This spells doom. Yes, for. exactly. <laughs> it always spelled doom for the heroes. Yep. You know, yep. <laughs> you have goofier, goofier versions of it, like Luthor and Brainiac teaming up. You know, Kurt Swan illustrating yeah. it. Um, the Frightful Four. You remember them? Mm-hmm. Ace Pot mm-hmm. Pete, Madame Medusa. <laughs> Uh, who else was it? Damn. Uh, Pace Pie Pete, Madame Medusa, Sandman, and it was one other character. Mm, and they were mm, they were the Frightful Four. Mm. Obviously, it didn't go anywhere because we can't remember anything else about the Frightful Four other than uh, other than that. But um, man, that better shit sound like an old ass rap group, yo. The Frightful Four. <laughs> <laughs> MCKD and the Frightful Four. <laughs> <laughs> And then also later on in the nineties, this is from from really from more your era is uh, Venom and Carnage, yo. Oh yeah, and that whole thing of maximum carnage, maximum carnage, yes, maximum carnage, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we're down to number one. Number one is the tropiest trope of all tropes. It is the it is all the right, most okay. trope esque of all of them. Okay, it is, it is, it is tropificent, if you will. Uh, this is right. superheroes fighting superheroes will always be popular. Got Sir. to that. That's the comic book conver- That's the comic shop conversation. Yes. yes. Who would beat so and so? Man, Hulk will beat Superman. Yep. Oh yeah. Yep. Batman, he'll 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 whoop Spider Man ass. Yep. Yep. The Thing <laughs> versus the Hulk. Uh, mm-hmm. if, what if Doctor Fate fought Doctor Strange? What yes. if Zatanna fought, yes. you know, uh, Hela? You know, uh, <laughs> Thor versus Hercules? You know, Thor fighting Hercules? Yeah. Um, again, Marvel had a whole line of issues. Marvel team up, and uh, you know, where you know some hero would team up with, and it would inevitably be inevitably be where they would meet, they would be a misunderstanding. And you know, hey, get out of here, Spider Man! You can't, 
come in here and then they got to fight and then they, after a few pages they realize oh wow we have a common enemy and it's so and so over there i don't know why we didn't think of this right. sooner you know and then you know go ahead and and then now we got to go fight you know our common enemy and defeat the common enemy <laughs> that's funny that's funny and, and then also marvel and dc remember they came together for they finally did yep. it they finally came up with the series marvel versus dc yep. you know what i'm saying yep. And and then they went even further. They said, not only that, let's make amalgam comics and blend the characters together. You know what I mean? Right. And then and then beyond that, though, you can't you can't forget a lot of the classic intercompany team ups that occurred because of this thing. Like that new Teen Titans versus the X Men. Walt Simonson, oh Claremont, oh my god, Terry Austin. Oh. Oh Dog. God, sir! Shit. It was over. I remember when that when they announced that I was like, okay, and who's doing it again? <laughs> Who did thou say was drawing and writing this book? Chris Claremont and Walt Simonson with Terry Austin on inks. So it was game over. It was game. Didn't it have a wraparound cover? I think it had a wraparound cover. Showed yeah, it. Man. Showed yeah. it, man. That was that was the truth. That was the truth. And, you know, like the whole idea of the fighting, like even the, the introduction of Black Panther, where he's got to fight the Fantastic Four and, basi- mm-hmm. and basically whoop him, you know, by himself, yeah. you know, um, you know, stuff like that would happen all the time as a way to introduce a character. Like I remember I was looking, was it, uh, it might have been in like a Marvel supervillain team up where the Shroud mm. was fighting uh dr doom or namor or somebody and it was the first time i'd ever seen the shroud and that was the kind of the whole sell on the cover of the issue was is he a villain or is he a hero and then of Mm -hmm. course later on he he is revealed to be essentially a hero uh yeah but you know that was kind of the thing and even like someone like namor who would fight the fantastic four and and other people too But Namor was always kind of a bit of an anti-hero. He was kind of like the Tony Soprano of superheroes or, uh, <laughs> you know, where it was like, okay, yeah, he's a hero, but he's kind of an asshole. And, you know, he's definitely a racist or a water racist, I call him, you know. <laughs> but, but you know, he was a part of the invaders. You know, he was on a team with Captain America and Human Torch and Toro and Bucky, you know. And it was so – and and his and – his, and his um, involvement was so tentative, though, like he could turn on a dime. Right. And he always let you know every issue. The only reason I'm with y'all is because these U-boats are coming through Atlantis. And I don't like that right, shit. Right, right. Okay? That's the only reason I'm here. Right. <laughs> don't get it twisted. Right, right, right. It was kind of a print quo quo. Okay, I'll help you if you help me with this. But I ain't on your side. Right. You know, I'm not I'm not some knuckle dragon service dweller. You know, that's not who I am. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so for sure. But I wrote down a couple, and I'm sure you could either have some or you could probably think of a couple, but uh, oh, sure, yeah. dark dystopian kinds of futures where the you know the heroes end up dying. You know, oh, a, a la, you know, where we see the greatest example of that in days of future past. You know, course, that's the greatest of example of it. And then you see other examples of it later where really and truly, uh, to some extent, you tell me if you think this is correct. The Ultimates mm-hmm. universe is really spawned from something like Days of Future Past. Like, what if we did this darker? 
What if we did this more gritty? What if we did this where there were more where more consequences, where there were, you know, the flaws or, you know, post-Watchmen, post-Days of Future Past, the Ultimate Universe kind of always felt like that to me. Now, I didn't read a lot of it. You, you probably would know better than I would. Yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't quite dystopian, but definitely a darker vision. You know what okay. I mean? Um, I, I, think a lot of, I think a lot of those type of stories that work and why we respond so well to that stuff, it's like it's that alternate view of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I remember reading Days of Futures Past as a paperback that I got from like um, some secondhand bookstore when I was a teenager. And um, just thinking like, wow. This is this is really this is a really good story, and it hits that nerve in me as a comics reader of like seeing these alternate versions of these characters. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And having them get killed. Yeah, that's the thing, and, and and that's why we love that, and that's why a lot of issues of what if work too, because we could do the stories even though it's a one off, and actually kill the characters and make it have consequences. You can't do that in the regular books too much. Right. You know what I'm saying? And that was kind of the thing I always liked about it too as well. And and along with like What If uh, and Elseworld Mm -hmm. stories where they would go ahead and embrace, you know, comic books are very much like, you know, hour-long dramas or sitcoms where, you know, the characters kind of exist in stasis. They're not really supposed to be changed too much. You know, they're supposed to be Mm -hmm. able to kind of be reset. You know, let's say a la Stan Lee's philosophy that every issue of spider-man is some some readers very first issue so you want to make mm-hmm. it accessible to them and you want the character to kind of reset every couple of issues and, and kind of get back to oh peter's trying to sell pictures to J. jonah jameson and trying to get a date and iron man is still trying to figure out what's going on is he going to die from this heart thing or is he going to you know survive it you know is, is the suit going to keep him alive or is the pacemaker going to keep him alive yeah. and you know, Thor, you know, is oh never going to forgive me for being such a, a, a bratty jerk and let me come back to Asgard. And I got to stay on Earth and walk around here with this bum leg and his cane. You know, it, it was all of those things. And so in like in what if we would see consequences? OK, what if Matt Murdock was able to save Elektra and they did just turn their backs on being super uh, superheroes and supervillains and go live on a mountain somewhere in Tibet or Peru? You know, and it's like, OK, if that's what you're going to do, right. you know. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. But um, but I think you're right. I think that was kind of the thing. It was it was the idea that you know you could see, you know, a real, a real you know consequence for you know for certain actions for living your life a certain way. But mm-hmm. I do think that, like you said, the uh, the Ultimate Universe was a darker version. Obviously, um, you know, a la Brian Hitch and um, who was the writer? Was that uh, Bendis? Oh. Uh, no, uh, Mark Miller. Mark Miller. Even though Bendis did write uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, but okay. the overarching vision, darker vision, was Mark Miller. Okay. All right, Mark Miller. The other one for me was is race and gender swapping heroes for no reason is lame. Oh, very. It is lame. Super lame. And you, and you can see it like from across the street where you're like, okay. Okay, so this person is just more interesting because they're... They're female now instead of male, or they're male now instead of female. This character is more interesting now because they're Asian, or because they're Hispanic, because they're black, or they're in a wheelchair, mm. or they've got you know mental illness, or uh, or they are uh, uh, or, or you swap the uh, their sexual preference, and so now they're the LGBTQ or the gay or the bisexual, what have you. This is simply the only thing that makes them more interesting, as opposed to 
you know, where there have been examples of it, like, you know, for instance, the aforementioned North Star. North Star, from his very inception, it was always implied or it was always uh, kind of hinted at that he was bisexual. And this is at a time, obviously, where people, you know, weren't as out as they are now. And so for yeah. him mm-hmm. to, you know, 15, 20, 25 years later to be fully out and to, and, to, and to get married and all of that, that actually made good sense. And that was that was great. The other thing I thought was yes. kind of interesting, too, and at first well, I kind of bristled at it at first, but then it did kind of work for me, was the Golden mm. Age Green Lantern. Uh, didn't didn't they uh, cast him as a, as a gay character or make him a gay character in recent days? Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It was revealed in the 2000s. Yeah. And that actually works for me because, I mean, provided if you say that he actually was originated in the 40s and 50s, there were many, mm-hmm. many, 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 many closeted gay men who looked as straight as 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 any others, who were you know handsome and seen as as as, as masculine and virile and uh, and just heterosexual in every sense of the word, and could not fully come out and be who they were in the 40s and 50s. That just was impossible. That was impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, there were over in England, you know, you would be put in jail and castrated if you came out as a gay man or if you were, you know, known to be openly gay. That happened to uh to Alan mm-hmm. Turing, you know, back in the uh post World War II. Really? Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Snaps. I didn't even realize. Yeah. I wonder what what his what his legacy was. I knew about the scientific stuff, but I didn't know that that was yeah. another. Th- oh, yeah, wow. he was a closeted gay man, and I think my understanding of it is is that um, he'd had a break in or something at his house, and it turned out it was a guy that he was uh, paying for sex. Went back to his house and broke in later and tried to steal some stuff. And Turing kind of played the detectives mm. off, and then they realized. Oh, that this was a guy that he had picked up at a bar, or whatever, and paid for sex for gay sex, and he was essentially arrested, and was told either mm-hmm. you could go to to prison or you can be chemically castrated, and he was chemically castrated. Whoa! Yeah, and then, and then maybe some some few years later, he ended up committing suicide. Damn! So it really so I say that Holy as shit. far as the Golden Age uh, Green Lantern. I can't. What was the Alan Scott? Yes, Alan that's Scott. Right. You know, so the idea that this guy who is basically playing as straight as he can in public, but really and truly, you know, he this is who he is in his in his, in, in inside, um, I, that actually worked for me. And in the same way, I guess that they kind of like they played with it with uh, in Watchmen, the Watchmen comics with uh, mm-hmm. with the Hood. Was it the Hood? Yeah, Hood, hood Justice. Hood Justice. Hood Justice. Yeah. But do you do you are there yeah, any man. any other any tropes that you kind of thought of uh, as we were preparing for this conversation, man? Yes, and in fact, I have one 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 good one as, as we kind of close it up, man. One of my favorite all time tropes is any story that says the trial of dot <laughs> dot dot. Yes, yo. If you yes. want, if you want me to pick up if you want me to pick up your comic, put on there the trial of the Flash, the trial of the Batman. Yes. You know, it's just <laughs> like oh shit. Right. I don't know. To my adolescent mind, and I think to a lot of readers as well, the trial of whatever just makes it sound like this is some important shit. Yes. This is portentous. Yeah. This means 
the fate of this character, I got to know what happened. Yep. Or to quote Albert Popwell, I got to, to know. know. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> got to know. <laughs> so, yeah, man, like the trial of the Flash. And, 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 and here's the thing, too. A lot of times, it wouldn't be a one and done. It would be over the course of several issues mm-hmm. having this supposed trial play out. Like there was a trial of the Flash that played out for, God, seemed like about 15 or 20 issues, like about a year and a mm-hmm. half, you know, in the in the uh, mid-80s. Um, there was the trial of, um, I think there was the trial of the Incredible Hulk where he was finally caught by Thunderbolt Ross and they were trying to decide now, what do we do with the Hulk? How do we get rid of this motherfucker? <laughs> and should he be tried for his crimes against humanity? Yeah. Just stuff like that. And then the trial of Reed Richards in Fantastic Four, when John Byrne was writing it, you know, they finally caught up to him and said, remember, 10 issues ago, you let Galactus go. Oh. You had him. Yeah. You let Galactus go, and so now you're going to be tried before this galactic court yeah. for your crimes, not only against humanity, but against the universe. It's, it's almost like it's almost it, like an intergalactic Nuremberg trials, where it's like, okay, you know. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And even like with someone like Batman, where, you know, like Batman is a vigilante. I mean, he works outside mm-hmm. the law. Yeah, he's buddies with Jim Gordon. But he works outside mm-hmm. of the law. So at some point in time, something bad has got to happen. And they've got to say, look, this is fault. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, somebody dies, and, you know, they they might want to hit bats with a manslaughter charge. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> a case. <laughs> and, and, the, and, and the other thing that goes hand in hand with the trial of is wh- whatever that first issue is where it says the trial of always, always, always. The heroic character must be in chains. Always. There's some type of manacle on there. Right. And they're holding the manacle up to the reader <laughs> as if to say, look, they got your boy, they got your boy cuffed right? up, yo. Look, read this issue. They got me cuffed up, yo. <laughs> hey, it seems like it would be either that or they've got to be in the judge's chambers and you gotta see the judge like banging the gavel or pointing. And saying you yes. are the offender or you are the aggressor or the transgressor and and, and pointing pointing that finger of, of uh of uh accusatory finger at the at the heroic character. Man, that's a Nick Cardi Carmine oh. Infantino cover right there, dog. Sir. That's a Joe Cubit ass cover Sir. right there, man. And I love <laughs> every one of them, yo. Every one. Yes. <laughs> yes, sir. At, at some point in time, yo, I became insatiable as far as that Silver Age DC stuff, Nick Hardy and Cubert and uh uh you mm, know uh Gil mm. Kane and Gardner Fox and all that stuff, where I'd be like oh. I mean, I would spend my nights after school trying to figure out what kind of comics I was gonna get next. You know, you you read yeah. you read the ads and you'd see, oh, you know, you could mile high comics and uh, all these different comic, you know, comic companies, and they would advertise in the comics. We have over six hundred thousand, six hundred thousand comics. What? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So any of that stuff, yeah, I was a sucker for it, and uh, and 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 DC, I think, definitely played the the melodrama of the trial of, or you know, the the hero on trial, or being accused, or 
you know, Hero No More. They they definitely played played that played that really really well. And 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 I love it as well. I love all of it. Yep. That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.